Have you ever loved your headshots? Would you rather go to the dentist than get your professional picture taken? For many people, it's a toss-up. They never like images of themselves, and sessions are awkward. If you're done with the standard headshot, it's time for the best. It's time for high-end headshots. Headshots you actually like. High-end headshots is a new kind of headshot experience. It's the polar opposite of being told to say cheese. Facial expression coaches produce images that resonate, images that actually look like you. Head photographer John Meadows coaches you, educates you, and takes your feedback into account as you go through the session. Visit highendheadshots.com to check out some of his work and schedule your appointment today. That's highendheadshots.com. That's highendheadshots.com. Tell them Brian sent you. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. think that we think that policy has to lead action, but that's not how good policy actually works. The way to develop policy is by demonstrating right practice. And once we've demonstrated and understood the right practices, and we've agreed on a sort of minimal set of those right practices, then we go right policy. Way too often inside the building and inside government, I'm sure, in general terms. We think that our job is to go write policy in order to drive behavior. That's exactly backwards. Our job is to drive behavior. And then when we find the right behaviors, then we can codify that policy. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. I'm really excited for today's episode because this person has only been in his role for a few weeks leading technology strategy for the U.S. Navy. That's right. My guest today is Don Yeski, who up until a few weeks ago was the chief solutions architect for the Navy, but will now serve as acting chief technology officer for the military branch. This is the position that was previously held by Jane Rathburn, who was recently promoted to Principal Deputy CIO, supporting the soon-departing CIO, Aaron Weiss. Don joined this group in October of 2021 from the Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic, where he led the Expeditionary Enterprise Systems and Services Division. And before NIWC Atlantic, he spent two years as head of future operations at the U.S. Marine Corps' headquarters. He was also Senior Information Technology Advisor at the Defense Secretary Cooperation Agency over in Afghanistan. We have so much to unpack in this conversation, especially his time in Afghanistan and what he took away from that, plus his thoughts and vision about the future of the U.S. Navy. So let's jump right in. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. And um, just a quick clarification, a lot of people kind of come to that conclusion, but uh, the Department of Navy does have two services, uh, Navy and Marine Corps. So uh, we support both. Awesome. So your job is bigger than even even what I said. <laughs> it's a little, a little. I mean, it's the right title, but some people read into that that we only support the Navy, and sometimes those people are Marines. Uh, and I learned when I met my first Marine to be nice because you're going to meet them two more times. 
So I try not to piss those people off. I like that. So before we jump into um, uh, our conversation today, I do want to say congratulations on on recently becoming acting chief technology officer and uh, a good friend of mine, and I think he's a good friend of yours. Um, I've seen advocating for this to be permanent role, Paul Puckett, who just went to the uh, the private sector, but was the the director at ECMA. Um, Paul and I actually went to high school together, and he's been a guest on the show. But um, he obviously he obviously has a vision for what he's hoping for for the Navy. Yeah, um, he, he certainly does. He's been very public about well, just drop the acting bit. Um, I I, uh, I am a huge fan of Paul Puckett, and uh, it's great to know that you guys go way back. Um, yeah, Paul's a great guy, and I think he's done a lot to help shape what. Um, the future of cloud looks like cloud readiness looks like for the army, and I think that could become a blueprint for for a lot of other agencies beyond even DoD. So I think it's it's pretty cool some of the work that he's done. Oh yeah, it, and it it pretty much is our blueprint. Our, our blueprint is based on uh, what the ECMA managed to accomplish under Paul's leadership. So we're we're a fast follower in that regard. Very cool. So an, another thing I wanted to also bring up, one of the ways that you and I got connected was we started talking about um, a show that we both love, Welcome to Wrexham. And I don't know if the, the listeners have caught this one, um, but it's about a small soccer team in Wales that Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, uh, two, two actors, actually purchased and they created a documentary about it. I love soccer. Soccer is a, a huge passion of mine, but you said you only kind of picked it up because because uh, you weren't a huge soccer fan, but you picked it up and just kind of fell in love with the documentary. What what did you love about it so much? Well, I think like like anything, right, it's all about the people. And, uh, you know, not just the people on the team, but in the case of, you know, this specific team and this specific documentary, the, the people out there who are the fans of the team are kind of the stars of the show. And you don't catch that early on, but what you know, uh, the more you tune into it, the more you recognize that it, it really is all about the people. Um, I, I had, you know, kind of watched soccer when nothing else was on at the gym and wondered why people liked it. And then as, as I got into uh, uh, Welcome to Wrexham, I, I, as I learned something about the game, uh, it became quickly very captivating. The more invested you are with a soccer team, the more invested you are with the game, uh, you know, just the more gut wrenching it is, uh, and, and so it's it's addictive. It's absolutely addictive. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things, I mean, you're absolutely right. The the people are the stars of the show. Um, and I was reading an article how people are traveling to the UK and driving hours just to get there because they want to meet the fans of Wrexham. So I think if that doesn't personify exactly what you said, I don't know what does. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's jump into uh, some of the topics that I wanted to cover with you today. Um, before we kind of talk about some of the the things happening within Navy, and, and um, obviously we're going to get into the capstone design uh, concept, but um, in your background, I, some, I found something really fascinating. You spent some time in Afghanistan actually uh, leading efforts to train, advise, and assist the Afghanistan Ministry of Defense's uh, general staff around uh, ICT. Tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you, what you took away from it. Um, and I think just some of the, I guess, if you had any preconceived notions going in that maybe uh, that were kind of rebuffed or validated. So, yeah, um, I, I was um, I was in Afghanistan, actually, for the second time. I had spent uh, most of 2011 
in Southwest Afghanistan in Helmand province with the Marines in, in 2011. And so uh, when I came back uh, in 2018 and through half of 2019, uh, totally different area. I was in Kabul, a uh, totally different mission, uh, train, advise, assist. You mentioned the MOD. Uh, my two principals um, in that position were the, the Ministry of Defense General Staff G6 uh, and the Ministry of Interior Affairs, which, if you're not familiar, is kind of like a combination of a national police force and a state department, if you can imagine that. That's what the, the MOI is. Uh, and I actually spent way more time with them and, and specifically with the director general of ICT for the MOI. Um, <clears throat> there is a, a, a training program uh, called Ministry of Defense Advisors. It's a, it's a program that the uh, uh, DSCA, uh, the Def Defense Security Cooperation Agency, runs. And they train uh, advisors who are going not just to Afghanistan, but anywhere around the world for uh, uh, a couple of months, and it's pretty intense. Uh, about half of that training is on language and culture, just understanding the people and kind of the soft skills of advising. Uh, being an advisor doesn't convey authority, but it does convey uh, a lot of uh, influence. And so what they do in that, that half of the training program is they teach people uh, kind of how to build and wield influence, which I think is just hugely important to any endeavor. Um, wasn't the first time I encountered it, but it was certainly the most focused. The, the other half is tactical training because we're civilians, you know, we're fat idiots. And, uh, you know, there are times, uh, unfortunately, when it is very unsafe in the places, not just Afghanistan, where advisors go. Uh, and so they, they trained us on... <coughs> You know, initially there's just weapons training, you know, with a sidearm, but then uh, a lot of going through, you know, a shoot house, trying to get from point A to point B safely, uh, you know, what to do if you're, you know, in a convoy driving, uh, something bad happens. So they just tried to prepare us for the worst case scenarios. As far as what did I take away from, from that, uh, from that assignment, I, I would say the the big thing is uh, it, it, it definitely uh, put my ego on the back burner. You, you come into it thinking that, hey, here we are, we're the experts and you know we're, we're here to help and we're gonna give you all our best ideas and that's gonna make everything better. And one of the key challenges uh, and something you very quickly learn in the real world if you don't learn it in training, and I, I kind of had to learn it in both is only local solutions work. Only local solutions matter. Only local solutions are sustainable. If the people themselves aren't doing it, then it, it, you know they'll do it to placate you while you're there on the ground. But the moment your foot touches the rail on the helicopter to leave, things are going to go back to the way they were. And you know that that is uh, uh, that is a hit to the ego. You know you have to recognize that. Um, you can have all the good ideas in the world, but it, your ideas don't matter. What matters is what these people need and how they can get to those needs. And so it's a, it's a very cooperative thing. Um, I, I don't know if I'm adequately describing that, honestly. It's a very, no, I, I, I think that's a really good lesson for, for anything, right? If you're, it's, it's, you could kind of boil it down to, you have to teach them how to fish. You can't fish for them. 
because once you leave, they're not going to catch any fish. I mean, it's as kind of as simple as that, but I think that's, that's a lesson that, um, that doesn't just kind of live in Afghanistan, but I think it's something that, uh, we all experience in everything that we're doing. Something, something you said that that's really interesting. And honestly, as you were saying it, I was thinking I would, you and I need to go grab a beer and spend a couple hours. Cause I would love to unpack your mind on some of the things you learned about wielding influence and how to do that. But can you give the listeners just a couple takeaways that you learned during that training about how to be influential, how to really lead people without, um, without being like that dictator role? Yeah. The first thing to do is, uh, go into receive mode. The, the, the fact is we don't have any influence unless we understand the people we're seeking to influence. So, you know, lessons one, two, and three are, are all the same. Shut up and listen, you know, try to, try to be an active listener, figure out what it is that, that drives the people that you're there to support because you're there to support them. And when they recognize that and you recognize that only then can you start to build influence. And then as far as, uh, you know, having and wielding influence, it's, I mean, this is months and months of, you know, scenarios and, uh, you know, taking you through various kinds of challenges that we absolutely did face. Uh, it was a fantastic training program. Uh, we absolutely did face in the real world, but what they amount to when you stack them all up together is, is understand, uh, understand your audience, right? Understand, uh, what drives them, what motivates them and what they need and what tools are available to them, whether or not you're even in the room. And then you can start to help them think through challenges, but that's your job. Your job isn't to give them solutions, although some of them, some of the people that we advised uh, certainly would try to put us in a position of owning the problem. And, and it's important not to do that as an advisor. It's important to say, well, you know, when they bring you a problem, your our natural human response is to go, oh, okay, well, here's how I can solve that for you. That's natural, but it's totally wrong right? The, the, the way, uh, that we kind of had to do this. And I think the way we have to, we have to build anything large and sustainable is to recognize, okay, that's your challenge. What are you going to do about that? What tools are available to you? What, uh, what techniques are available to you? Hey, have you thought about approaching it this way? Uh, those, the, the way that we approach problem solving as advisors is inverse of the way that we approach problem solving as the people experiencing the problem. And that is right and natural and correct, right? That's how it's supposed to work. I, I don't know if I, does that make sense? It makes total sense. I mean, for me, it, it, it that's gotta be such a huge challenge though, because I would have to imagine, and I'm just, I'm just kind of prognosticating, but you, you showed up and some of the challenges that they were facing I mean, some of them were probably things that, that we've seen years ago that we were, that we've worked through. Absolutely. So, so you get there and you're thinking, guys, I have the, all the answers to the test essentially, but my job isn't to give them the answers. My job is to help them reverse engineer the problem so they can get to the answers themselves. Well, it's, it, it's that, but it's also like, yes. And add on to that. Uh, it, it is that, but it's also that my answers to the same test won't work for you. The, the, ah, yeah. The answers, the answers that we as Americans with a professionalized volunteer military with, you know, 200 years of experience in a civil service, right, with 
uh, rule of law well established with a functioning democracy, the things that we can do uh, with our level of education, with our, our level of technology and, and you know, technical experience and, and, and adeptness, these are not things that Afghans have, but I'll tell you what they do have. They're tenacious as hell. They're smart as hell uh, and, and in different ways than we are. Uh, they're, they're far more um, practical and, and uh, in terms of emotional intelligence, oh my God, like uh, it's crazy. The, the first thing that happens when you meet an Afghan is you gain a brother or a sister. They, they know how to build networks uh, really, really well. And, and as they do, uh, they, they do that almost out of a, a sort of necessity. Like, you know, we're stronger together. And, and, you know, there are social and, and, and cultural norms that arise out of that. And so they're very, very good at things that we suck at, actually. And they can use that to their advantage. Um, so, so, yeah, part of it is, you know, I, I can give you my solutions, but you may not understand them. The, the other part of it is my solutions won't work for you, but that doesn't mean you can't solve this problem. And I, I can see exactly why you said it's a little bit of a, a hit to an ego because it's it's kind of coming up with that what that new solution looks like. Um, but it sounds like they're really good at at not having those egos. They come in and they're they're there to learn, and that, I'm sure that helps you kind of meet them where they are in that way. Oh yeah, I mean, and let's not simplify a very complex people, right? Yeah, uh, Afghanistan has you know eight or nine different large cultural. Uh, entities within it. Uh, Afghanistan has a huge diversity of people. I mean, it's a it's a nation the size and roughly the population of Texas. Uh, you know, lots of diversity there. So there are all sorts of Afghans, mm -hmm. including you know, just as there are all sorts of Americans. There are all sorts of people. You know, some do have massive giant egos, but as a broad group, um, I've found that Afghans are uh, generally forthright, uh, very open. And very personal, and they want to build personal relationships with everyone. It happens very, very quickly. And one of the big challenges of being an advisor in Afghanistan is actually uh, that you have to maintain a sort of uh, emotional detachment, which is very hard to do because you, you do become very, very close to the people who you you meet with and advise on a regular basis. And in fact, since the fall uh, of Kabul, since the fall of the the, the government of Afghanistan. Uh, those of us who did that job really have been uh, devastated and uh, have done many things, uh, everything in our power and many things that are outside of our power to try and help the people who, who we got to know so well through that endeavor. And, and in fact, uh, I'm in the midst of establishing a charity for, for that purpose so that we can help a very specific group of people uh, who who need protection under our laws, but are being denied that protection. So, you know, we're all still, really still engaged in that fight. I think that says a lot considering, I mean, you were there um, for a short period of time uh, relative to kind of your life, but it made such a huge impact. So you carried a lot, carried a lot back with you. But I think just, just that in and of itself kind of tells just what type of impact it made. And I think that we've, We've heard stories from from numerous people, um, like yourself and others, that that were on the front lines there. That said the very same thing: where when Kabul fell, there were people there that they know they they owed their lives to that were struggling, 
And there was a sense of, I need to give back and find a way to do that. So that's, I think that's, that's amazing that, that you're working to do that in, in the capacity that, that you have. Um, I, I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit, um, and kind of dive into a little bit of the, uh, the technical stuff that, that we wanted to unpack today. And, but starting with something a little less technical around mindset and culture, um, Aaron Weiss, the the CIO um, for the Department of the Navy, last week at um, AFCA West, was talking about kind of what the what the need was around cybersecurity, and and I think he he really said it best when he said that there needs to be a seismic cultural shift to maintain a, a competitive edge in modern warfare. Because I mean, obviously, make no mistake, cybersecurity and and is cyber warfare, and I think that's the way. To approach it, but he's saying that that mindset shift is really focused on making this a military problem of readiness um, and currency instead of just a compliance checklist. Um, what are your reactions to that? What are your thoughts, and what are some of the things that you feel like you're going to be doing to help make this uh, a reality? So Aaron uh, has been driving this vision along with with Jane Rathbun for more than a year. Uh, in partnership with ASNRDA, and and uh, he has a stump speech, and he delivered it at FCOS uh, masterfully. Uh, I couldn't hope to replicate it. Um, to 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 be clear, uh, and some people hear Aaron talk about this, and they take away the wrong impression. So let me let me offer a little bit of nuance in terms of my response, my uh, you know my take on it. Um, what Aaron is really saying is we focus on compliance, compliance to standards. That's a great thing to focus on, right? Um, but as we do that, A, we do it wrong. We spend way too much time and way too much money. Uh, and, and we focus on, you know, kind of a checklist of things to go check. And uh, our objective is really to get through that checklist. Um, and, and then B, uh, even if we got much better at it, even if we spent less time and less money and less you know, uh, heartache on getting an ATO, that wouldn't actually be sufficient. So to boil that down, compliance, Aaron's not saying compliance doesn't matter. Aaron's saying compliance is necessary, but it's nowhere near sufficient. It's nowhere near sufficient because the goal isn't to complete a checklist. The goal is to be ready to face a cyber threat. And we face cyber threats every day. And without getting into anything classified here, I would say, uh, you know, we could do a lot better. We could do a lot better. We know that. Um, that doesn't mean our game is terrible, but it does mean that the way that we've pursued this problem in, in Aaron's mind and mine, certainly in many people's, is totally wrong. We've got to focus on, uh, we've got to focus on the actual objective, which is to be ready to face a cyber threat, right? Readiness, and uh, what Aaron calls currency, bear in mind, he's a pilot. Uh, and when he talks about currency, he's talking about it in that context of, of being a civilian pilot, right? And, and I can't improve on his explanation, so I'll offer it here. You know, basically, Aaron's stump speech in that part of it says, hey, look, I'm a pilot because at one time in my life, I demonstrated to an FAA certified uh, instructor that I am able to pilot an aircraft. I demonstrated certain skills and and, you know, I passed a test and, and I got a little card and it says I'm a pilot. Um, 
But here's the thing, in order to exercise that privilege of being a pilot, you have to be what's called in, in aviation terms, current. You have to have ongoing education. You have to have flight hours. If you want to land with instruments, you got to demonstrate that skill periodically, right? Uh, and, and, you know, you, there's medical requirements, right? You got to go see your doctor and make sure that you're still fit to be a pilot. Uh, so there's all these currency requirements that are required to exercise the privilege that you got from that one time, you know, wallet sized card that unless the FAA decides to take it away is yours for life. So when we think about cybersecurity, I think that's really the model that, that Aaron started with. And it's a great model. You're going to get the card. Compliance still matters. Mm -hmm. You're going to go get the card. But once you get that card, you can keep it and use it so long as you earn it. Right. It's all about earning it and earning it, not just once, but every single day. So in terms of cybersecurity, what does that actually mean? It means continuous monitoring. It means threat emulation. Right. It means building software and systems and infrastructure in a secure way and proving that we built them in a secure way and being able to change them as rapidly as the threat changes, which is rapid. All of that, those are things that we have never historically traditionally looked at in our accreditation processes, which means our processes are, are, are not complete. So, so compliance. Uh, people hear Aaron talk and they say, oh, well, you, you don't want a checklist. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying compliance is necessary, but it's nowhere near sufficient. He's saying that that's, the, that's the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. That's to start. That's to get the car. Yeah. Right. I think then, I mean, just to take yeah. a step back for a second, even beyond cybersecurity, because as as you're talking, I feel like and this isn't this isn't just specific to a to a government problem. I think this can be something that the commercial sector deals with too, but currency is a big challenge in every type of technology set and area of focus that you're in. And part of that is because technology moves so fast. I think on the government side of things, policy really kind of dictates how some of these technologies are leveraged and used and whether there's ethical ramifications, et cetera. But there's no way that policy can keep up with the the rate at which technology moves. And one example, and I just I just talked about this with a recent guest, um, was around Chat GPT. Now I'm not saying Chat GPT is is the technology of technologies, but it's just one example of where it has come out. It's become mainstream. It's become mainstream in a consumer way where I can go, my wife can go, my kids can go use it. Um, and there's absolutely going to be implications within government, but there's no policy that that says how it should be used, how it shouldn't be used, but now it's there. So I'm curious to know specific to that word currency, because I think that's a, a great inclusion into this, what your thoughts are on ways that not just the United States Navy, but just government in general can can maybe move a little bit more agilely to remain more current in this way. I think we think of policy backwards. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. Policy codifies what we understand to be best practice. Policy forms uh, the guardrails inside of which we operate. If, if we were bowling, policy would be the bumpers and the gutters. It doesn't mean you're going to bowl a strike. It means you're not going to bowl a gutter ball. And I, I think that we think that policy has to lead action. But that's not how 
good policy actually works. The way to develop policy is by demonstrating right practice. And once we've demonstrated and understood the right practices, and we've agreed on a sort of minimal set of those right practices, then, then we go right policy. Way too often inside the building and inside government, I'm sure in general terms, we think that our job is to go right policy in order to drive behavior. That's exactly backwards. Our job is to drive behavior. And then when we find the right behaviors, then we can codify that in policy. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And it's interesting using kind of taking that analogy because I think that's a really good one. If you're if you're thinking of it as a bowling lane and policy being the bumpers, let's say the ball never hits the bumpers, right? And that's a lot of ambiguity in terms of allowing for someone to, I mean, just be creative with what they're yeah. doing, right? Do you think government has the appetite to allow that? Or is that something that they should be working towards? If we don't have the appetite to allow that, some of us do. But if we don't broadly have the appetite to allow that, we need to develop it. Because, uh, and, and I'm sure implicit in the question was the answer, right? Um, uh, if we don't enable people to find what works for them, we're never going to find what works. It, it's Again, it's inverse thinking. Uh -huh. it, believing that believing that all good ideas flow from the top down is, is folly, right? Policy flows from top down, but good ideas don't generally flow that way. Generally, not always, generally, good ideas come from the, the bottom and they bubble up. And so if we don't allow people, you know, freedom to maneuver to figure out what exactly is going to work best, uh, then what we're doing is we're limiting the number of good ideas we can have to the number of good ideas that we have at the top of the organization. That doesn't work. That's just not practicable. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if we believe it should work or not. In, in the real physical, practical universe, it doesn't work. And so we're going to have to adjust our practices to allow for teams to discover what works best for them and then codify those best practices so that others can follow them. Um, I, I absolutely agree. And I'm a big believer that, especially when you're looking at kind of modernization um, or digital transformation, if you want to throw those buzzwords out there, but in that realm, everything is interrelated. Everything is interconnected and it all kind of flows together. And that type of analogy and that type of situation is absolutely going to have an impact on being able to bring in better talent. Because if you're, if you're telling people that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to put an emphasis on having the right technology, right. And bringing in people that can help us in those areas beyond the gutters, bring in that talent. We're not, we're not going to come in and we're not going to turn you into robots and say, Hey, do this, follow this checklist and do this. We're going to come in and say, Hey, this is the problem we have now solve it. Uh -huh. in in the best way possible there's the ambiguity but it's also going to be where the innovation happens and i think like i said it, it's going to be a, a hopefully a way to bring in some of that top talent that is as eager to be able to operate without those guardrails in place like that or not lose that talent right Correct. We, want to, we, we want to attract people who want to be creative um when I talk with people about, you know, obliquely this topic, one of the things I, 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 I want to make sure that I bring up is we have to appreciate what our actual advantages are, right? What are our actual advantages? Let's, let's put the United States on the global 
map on a you know on a globe look at the united states it doesn't have the most people it, it does have some level of geographic separation you know uh we don't have the most industry you know we've got a bunch of money but what are our actual advantages when you compare our military to foreign militaries, especially the militaries of the people who are named in the national security strategy, including the unclassified portion of the national security strategy, which is obviously all I will discuss here. Um, what stands out isn't that we're bigger geographically or more numerous in terms of population or you know that we have more of anything. What stands out is the people. The way that we operate in a military context is different than the way that our competitors and adversaries around the world operate. Because the way we operate is we push autonomy downward as far as it will go. Uh, General Mattis used to talk about the strategic lance corporal. There's, there's an idea that I think is scary to some of our adversaries that we have embraced for decades in our all-volunteer military force, which is we're going to educate the hell out of you. We're going to we're going to empower you as best we can. And we're only going to give you mission type orders. Here's my objective. Here's your left and right lateral limits. Commander, go command. And that goes from the very top all the way on down to like the squad level. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to suck the egg. I'm going to tell you there's the egg. And so we don't you know, in, in, look at Russia operating, particularly early in the war. I was just, that's so funny because I was just thinking that it's one of the reasons why I think Ukraine has been able to leverage that to their advantage. Yeah. How many, how many generals did Russia lose? I mean, yeah. I think we have a list, right? And it's a long list. Um, and why did they lose all those generals? Because they were right in there because the people they were commanding could not exercise autonomy. That's the difference. That is the difference. And so if we want to take advantage of our differences, right, it, first understand your advantages and then lean into them. If we want to lean into our advantages as a people, that means empowering people to be creative. That means being flexible in how they achieve the objective. And that means being laser focused on that objective. I will set left and right lateral limits for people to the extent I have to and absolutely no further because i want us to win and if all good ideas come from me we don't win but if if i empower everyone who can hear the sound of my voice to enact every good idea that they have we're going to find the best ones and we're going to win when we talk about leadership i think sometimes what you said was the generals were in there because they couldn't operate in in an autonomous fashion I think even worse than that, I think sometimes there's an unwillingness from the top down to allow them that type of autonomy to do oh, yeah. that. I, th I think, and that to me is even worse because what you're saying is the leadership doesn't have the trust in allowing to kind of pull the shackles off and say, okay, go be creative within these, these guardrails. I think that's one of the values, like you said, one of the values that we have is we have leaders that want that to happen. They want to... Um, we can say decentralized command, right? They, they want to decentralize a lot of that decision-making and, and set the parameters and let them go. And I think that willingness to do that is certainly an advantage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So let's, let's talk about strategy real quick. Um, so back in October, uh, there was the release of the, the capstone 
design concept for in information security. Um, superiority. By, superiority, I'm sorry. And um, it really outlines the Department of the Navy's vision to optimize information environment for cloud, adopt enterprise services, and implement a zero trust architecture to achieve operational resilience and improve customer experience. That's what it says, but what, in your words, kind of what is this, um, what is this strategy and, and how do you see it being successful for the Navy? So I, I, uh, my professors at NDU would not forgive me if I didn't point out that it's not a complete strategy, it's the beginning one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we will continue to flesh it out. Um, but the capstone design concept for information superiority is a framework. It's a framework in which we want everyone who develops anything for the Navy or the Marine Corps to go and innovate. And what we're trying to emphasize, you know, back to that concept of mission type orders and decentralized command, what we're trying to enable here is, is creativity to get to those objectives. So we want to be clear and laser focused on what they are. And we want to set left and right lateral limits only where we have to. And we want people to innovate within that framework. One of the words that, or phrases that kind of pops out to me is the, the improvement of customer experience. I think we've seen so much emphasis around CX from a, I think a federal civilian standpoint, especially with the executive order, but not as much emphasis. And I, I don't mean there hasn't been emphasis placed on it, but I think people haven't talked about the importance of delivering uh, a superior user experience for the warfighter. So I'm glad to see that in there. What, is, what does that phrase really mean to you? So uh, customer experience is one of two outcomes in the capstone design concept. The other is operational resilience. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Going back to the experience that we talked about earlier in Afghanistan, my last commanding general there uh, was Jim Rainey, who at the time was a three-star general. He's now a four-star general, uh, I, I believe in command of Army Futures Command. But his career has been leading infantry. And when he came in, and it was somewhat sudden during the time that I was there, um, he, he, uh, he kind of had a mantra. He had a stump speech that he would deliver to everybody to organize us and motivate us toward the things that we needed to be working on. And it was about doing the right things and doing things right. So what he said was, uh, I'm, I'm convinced we're doing things right. I'm not convinced we're doing the right things. And then he gave us a list of criteria for understanding what the right things were. Do you have a partner that you can trust? Can we afford it right now? And can you get it done in the next 12 months? Like those were, very clear filtering criteria. And he said, if you can say yes to those things, don't ask me, just go do it. Just go do it. Whatever that idea is, just go do it. <laughs> you know, come tell me how it's going, but don't ask me for permission. You have permission to go. We spell out two, two, two outcomes, right? Customer experience and operational resilience. And that's how we measure if we're doing the right things. And if, so if your customer experience is improving, uh, and your operational resilience is improving, and those are measured outcomes, then you're doing the right things. And if they're not, then you're not. Uh, and then there are four attributes, 
customer focused, best value cost, dynamic and confidence inspiring. Those, those are qualitative and they tell us, are we doing things right? So two outcomes, are we doing the right things? Yes, if they're improving. Four attributes, are we doing things right? No, if we're not actually living by those attributes. Make sense? It makes sense. And, and one of the other aspects of, of this framework that I thought was interesting was talking about information. And I think the way, the way it was broken down is being able to move any information to any place at any time securely. And I mean, I think that's a, it's a, it's not necessarily a novel concept, but it's definitely difficult to do in practice. What are, what are the approaches that, um, you're thinking will make that come to life? So those are our objectives. Um, Aaron has this thing he's called the golden requirement since he came on board and he's now in his fourth or fifth year actually as the Don CIO. Um, so he's been saying this for a long time, securely move any information from anywhere to anywhere. Any occurs in that phrase three times. It's there on purpose. And it's there to remind people that, you know, what I'm saying applies to you. It applies to you if you're in the tactical world. It applies to you if you're a defense business system. It applies to you if you're a national security system. It, it, any is any is any. We have to understand our whole battle space and manage our whole battle space if we're going to be effective. And our whole battle space is everything. Um, how are we going to get there? That's the three objectives, right? And each of those has a major design concept. We've actually just released the first one on, on February 7th. And I'd, uh, I'd love to get further into detail on that with you. But the, the three objectives that are outlined in the capstone are first, optimize the information environment for cloud. So in that major design concept, which we just published, we spell out what do we mean by information environment? We kind of mean everything by that. And what do we mean by cloud? We mean what NIST means by cloud. People hear the word cloud and they think public cloud. They think, you know, Google and Amazon and Microsoft. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. What we're talking about is <clears throat> the five essential elements of cloud as spelled out by NIST a dozen years ago. And we're very clear in that document. That's what we're talking about. So, so that, that objective breaks down into deliver everything as code, right? So, so we're going to go deliver uh, the information environment itself and everything in the information environment as code, because that, that makes us more agile, that makes us more relevant, that makes us able to maneuver the network and adjust to threats and adjust to opportunities. The second part of that is diversifying transport. Every time we accept we only have one way to transport data, we're accepting a, a single point of failure. Uh, so we need to drill those out of our thinking everywhere. And things like proliferated Leo uh, are changing the game in that regard. And then third, within that uh, optimize the IES code major design concept we've already written is modernizing application and data hosting environments. We can do all this other cool stuff to deliver capability, but if that capability doesn't meet with an environment in which it can be delivered, we've still failed. So we've, we've kind of got, got to get the last mile right. And that's, that means in our data centers, on our ships, in, in the Marine Corps' tactical vehicles and tents, anywhere and everywhere, that the hosting environments have to have those attributes of cloud and be ready to accept uh, the capabilities that we're delivering as code in a modern way. So that's part one, optimize the IES code. That was a lot. 
but there's two other parts and we will have these this this quarter we're publishing these right now because we want to get all this guidance out and then start iterating on specific design patterns within it so the other two parts you already mentioned are uh as, as far as how we're going to get to that golden requirement are uh, adopt enterprise services and really what we're saying there is uh, very much the conversation we already had find best practices reinforce best practices don't do the same thing you know poorly 12 times do it well once and get everybody using that we think that's a key to success here and then implement zero trust uh, not only because there's an executive order that requires us to do that but because our network centric security paradigms don't work um, I feel like there's a long explanation of that that, that I can kind of owe you. Here's the short one. For, for 25 years, for 25 years, we in the Department of Defense and across the federal government have been doing something insane. It wasn't insane 25 years ago, but it's insane now. And, and that is that every time that we encounter a new combination of security classifications and releasability caveats, what do we do? We go build a global network around that. The biggest, most obvious uh, example of that is Cipernet. And so think about that. That's a, that's a network that's used all across the federal government, right? DOJ, uh, Treasury, you know, uh, Homeland Security, Department of State, anyone and everyone that has to deal in information classified up to the secret U.S. only sort of level is on Cipernet. It is built in a way that embraces network centric thinking, which is um, I'm going to I'm going to build a network specifically for this purpose. I'm going to zealously guard and defend the boundaries of that network and thereby I'm going to keep the stuff within it safe. It's a way of thinking about the problem. It just happens to be a very old way of thinking about the problem. Uh, and by the way, not just not just Cipernet, which is actually hundreds of networks, but we have networks at other levels of classification, right? JWix for for SEI data. Uh, uh, SAP and Stowe networks. We've got dozens of networks with our coalition partners around the world based on our need to uh, release information to them when we go and operate jointly, including in Iraq, including in Afghanistan. Like we built networks for that. What that does, every time we do that, every time we build a network and we man the, the ramparts of that network and that's how we kind of play, <clears throat> what we've done is we've multiplied our costs and we've divided our defenders. It's a way of solving the problem, but if we're looking forward, it's not the best way of solving the problem. So what's the best way of solving the problem? Well, if we were to take a zero trust approach to that problem, and zero trust is not a complete solution to that problem that I've just described, but it's definitely the center of it, we would shrink the security boundary inwards. When we talk about um, you know, how to, how to defend we're not talking about how to defend a network. We're going to talk about how to defend data, right? So we need to build our, our defenses around the data. And when we exchange data with people, it kind of matters not only what that data is, which we have to definitely understand way better than we do right now, but also who are you and why do you need it? And is that normal or is that abnormal? The circumstances of that exchange matter. The device you're using matters. Sure, the network you're using also matters, but it's not everything, right? 
So, so when we shift from a network centric world, the world that we've lived in for 25 years and broadly still live in to a data centric world, a world in which our defenses are built around data. And, and, and that's where we, that's where we implement sort of the teeth of cybersecurity most, most vigorously. That's a world in which we are way more secure. And oh, by the way, uh, not just because I said so. We've gone out and we've talked to Google and Microsoft, and we understand like the world's largest organizations with lots of good reasons to care about security. They don't do what we do. They don't go build parallel internets to protect their most secure data, right? Bank of America doesn't do that. Google doesn't do that, right? Um, what they do is they pay very close attention to the data itself. They understand the hell out of that data and they apply protections around it. The, the executive order around zero trust is really about that. And when we talk about implementing zero trust in, in the Department of Navy, that's what we mean. Getting good at identity and getting good at data so that we can get way better at security. One of the things that kind of popped in my head is a good friend of mine, Jonathan Bennett, who used to be the chief solutions architect over at USDA, and he's at uh, Adobe now. But I had him on the show, and and one of the things he said was, "We're from a government technology perspective, we're really kind of in a in a renaissance era," and I think part of that is exactly what you were talking about in the form of a willingness to kind of disrupt. And I think for a long time, I mean, you, you talked about how we, the Department of Defense has been doing things for years and years and years because it, it worked then. And I think there hasn't been an appetite to disrupt because a lot of people for a long time have been kind of kicking the proverbial can down the road because it was working at the time. And I think we we woke up one day and said, wow, you know what? We've kicked this thing so far that we should have stopped. <laughs> we should have stopped Years miles ago. ago. Years and, ago. Yeah. and now we're at a point where you have leadership like yourself, like Aaron, like others at all levels of government that have not only an appetite to disrupt, but I think they feel the responsibility because they're, they can look out and say, guys, this not only is this wrong, but this is a th for you, right, a threat to national security. This is going yes. to inhibit our ability to not only accomplish our mission, but it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to inhibit our ability to protect the homeland. So I think part of that renaissance era, if you want to call it that, isn't just because there's a lot of really cool technologies out there, but I think it's the willingness to look at things and say, this is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to leave it for the next administration and the next administration, but really disrupt it and and put things right. So I think I think that really is 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 a summary of of what you guys are doing. And I think another thing is you're doing it in a way that is digestible, that people like myself could pick it up and understand it. It's not for it's not just for technologists or or people that get into the weeds on things, but somebody somebody that can just pick it up and say, "Yeah, you know what? I see this strategy. This makes sense to me." And they don't have to get into the the ones and zeros of things. Um, so I think making it digestible for everyone is another important attribute to to what I think you guys are doing with this framework. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, to speak very very quickly to both of those things, 
you're right. Disruption is no longer uh, something we would like to do. We have an imperative to disrupt the status quo. If we don't disrupt the status quo, uh, the enemy gets a vote and we will be disrupted. So, you know, there are things that we absolutely must do in order to stand against a peer adversary. And we've spent the last generation, uh, you know, doing a whole different job as a military. We, we've got to shift to, you know, just as, as the national security strategy lays out and everything that, that flows from it, including all of the documents we write, uh, we have an imperative to disrupt the status quo so that we can stand against peer threats. Um, with regard to making that accessible to everyone, yes, you, you couldn't be more right. And the way that we have gone about writing down our best thinking over that generation, that last generation, has been just wrong. I wouldn't say it's technically wrong, um, but it certainly hasn't worked. We've got 15 or 20 years worth of playtime on uh, something called uh, DODATH, DOD uh, Architecture Framework, mm -hmm. that tells us that, that you know, we can spend another 15 or 20 years building DODATH products, but they're not going to be any better at communicating to the people who need to hear it what those very advanced sort of concepts are that we need them to go and implement. Uh, there are people inside of programs, inside of DOD architects who are very good at, at you know, speaking and reading and writing DODAF. They're, they're fluent in it. Um, uh, what I would tell you is it's not those people who are, you know, the people who matter. And not that architects don't matter. Hey, uh, my last job before this one was chief solutions architect for the Department of Navy. I'm not saying that architects don't matter. I'm saying the way that we've gone about architecture, totally wrong if our objective is to cause large scale change, right? So, so making those documents digestible, I'm glad that that comes through because our, our intention here, uh, I'm going to show my age a little bit, was to write Cliff's Notes. All those architectures out there, like they exist and they say the right things. There's a JADC2 architecture, right? That's been iterated several times. There's a, a zero trust reference architecture that's now been iterated several times. Um, you know, there's a cybersecurity reference architecture. There's a, there's, a, there's a reference architecture for the DOD information environment writ large. And, and you know, we all kind of use terms from it. Um, but when you ask a room full of people who are in the business of delivering stuff to sailors and Marines. Hey, have you, have you read the JADC2 reference architecture? A few hands will go up in a room of 150 people. Hey, have you read the zero trust reference architecture? Maybe a couple more. I need all of those people, the, the program managers and the financial managers and the testers and the software developers and the engineers, and yes, the architects, I need all of them to understand the concepts that those architectures lay down, including the ones that we actually, when I came on staff with Don CIO, were still building. We were building something called the NISRA, uh, Naval Information Superiority Reference Architecture. We were doing the same thing. And what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So we stopped doing that. We're now writing Cliff's Notes. They're called Design Concepts. The, the capstone's 14 pages long. Anyone can pick it up and read it. The, uh, 
the new one, Optimize the Information Environment for Cloud, uh, is 13 pages long. So we've improved on it by one page. And, and I want to improve more in the next two that we're like in the next six weeks, we're going to publish these things. And then beyond that, we're going to start working on very specific topical design concepts. And my goal is to use a, a completely different language uh, that is also very technically adept, but that a lot more people are fluent in. It's called English to describe all those same concepts. Wait, are, are Cliff's notes not a thing now, Don? You, I, man, we, they are now anyway. I feel now I feel old. <laughs> I <laughs> no, I, I I totally agree. And and as as we're kind of wrapping up to bring it full circle, um, we opened with talking about one of the reasons why you and I both love the show Welcome to Wrexham is because it's about the people. And I think that's a really good analogy for what everything that you're doing and everything that we're all doing is really about, right? It's about allowing the people to be successful, allowing the people to be the stars of the show. Yes. And I think honestly that like it, our, our love for that show, I think if, if that's, that sounds like it's a great personification of what you're really trying to do is make the, make the people, make the sailors, the stars of the show by giving them the tools and the, the guardrails, right. To be successful. Yes, absolutely. It is all about the people. It's about empowering the people. It's about supporting the people. Digital transformation doesn't work because some leader in the Pentagon said we should do it. It works because everybody out there who's playing a part plays their part and we figure out the best way to proceed and we do it together. We haven't yet done that at scale. I want to do that at scale and I want to show that our faith in the people is well placed. Don, I appreciate this com conversation today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? Um, you know, just, uh, just, just shameless plug, like these documents we've been talking about are out on Google. Like you can Google them. Uh, they're publicly releasable for a reason. If you have a hand in building stuff for sailors and Marines, go read them and then come back to me as an open door. If you want to tell us we got anything wrong, or tell us what we need to do next, I want to hear from you. Awesome. Don, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.